The following resource is by CBC Mokopani. For more resources like this, check out our website at www.christbaptistmokopani.com. All right, we are in 1 John. Please turn with me in your Bibles to 1 John. And we get to an interesting portion. Um, We're in chapter 2, verse 28. And Lord willing, by the end, we will conclude with chapter 3, verse 3. So we've got some distance to cover. Now, my dear friends, our theme this morning is titled, The Assurance of Hope. The Assurance of Hope. Now, I'm excited about this theme because, for one, our series is titled, The Marks of Christian Assurance. The Marks or the evidences of Christian assurance. Because my dear friends, frankly I believe that all of us here today, at some point in our walk with the Lord, have doubted our salvation. Some of us here this morning might be doubting our salvation. And so it's key, it's fitting that hope is addressed. Because without hope, my dear friends, what do we have? What motivation, what encouragement, what longing do we have? See, John's letter to the church has addressed encouragement. He's given us exhortation. He has warned us. But this morning, as we read his words, inspired by the Holy Spirit, he points us to hope. Now, before we do that, In 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, Paul says the following, If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we of all people are to be most pitied. You get that? If our hope is only in this life, it's bleak. There's nothing to hope for beyond this life. It's the worst form of misery because if our hope is in this life which vanishes quickly, which is troubled regularly, then what do we stand on? What encourages us? What points us to the Lord? What points us to, as we prayed, His throne of grace? See, if all our hope is tied down to what happens here, What happens to us now? Don't you think that's the reason you're miserable? World-renowned authors have said, this is your best life now. That's terrible. I tell you what, apart from the grace of our loving Lord, life isn't always that great. And in those times, in those times of discouragement, in those times of weeping, in in those times of heartache, if all we ever look at is that which is before us, then what do we look, what do we have to look forward to? Hence, the Apostle John addresses hope. Proverbs 10 verse 28 rightly says, The hope of the righteous shall be gladness. 
but the hope of the wicked shall perish. Again, the, t- the temptation for us is to look at those outside of us and say, but why do the wicked prosper? The hope of the wicked shall perish. Yet it is the hope of the righteous that shall bring gladness. And so, as we come to 1 John, our section shows us two comforts, two comforts that point to the assurance of our hope. So let's read together and discuss how these two comforts point us to Christ and our everlasting hope. John says this, And now, little children, abide in Him, so that when He appears, we may have confidence and not shriek from Him in shame at His coming. If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we shall be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared, but we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as He is pure. Amen? Kind of just stop right there. That's the motivation we need. Yet, I'll give you a few more. Point number one, or assurance number one, is this. Abide in righteousness. You want to be comforted to have hope in Christ? Verse 28 and verse 29, John tells us, abide in righteousness. Abide means to stay, to stand, to remain in. And it's key here. We could say that abiding in Jesus will give us the zeal. It will enable us to grasp every opportunity to glorify His name. If we don't abide... What are we doing? You see, outside of Christ, we live a life of, of, of sin. To the world, it seems glamorous and glorious. But before the throne, it's vanity. It's empty. Charles Spurgeon put it like this, Abiding in Jesus is not a passive thing. It is an active thing. We must give ourselves mentally and spiritually to living in Jesus. We abide in Him not by a physical law, but by a mental and spiritual law by which the greatness of divine love and goodness holds us fast to the Lord Jesus. Friends, when we remain committed to Christ, that is us abiding in Christ, abiding in his righteousness we're not only called to abide in him but we are also told that he abides in us that's the grace that's the two-way relationship and so Spurgeon continues and he says the real reason for your abiding in Christ lies in the operation of his unchanging love and grace 
That's what it means to be held in Christ. Because He first loved us. Because He first bestowed His grace upon us. Therefore we abide in Him. We remain in Him. So yes, we are only capable of abiding as Christ enables us to abide. As Christ works in us. And so it's the abiding that comforts us with a hope. What does John's word say here? He says, abide in him so that when he appears, we may have confidence and not shrink away. He's referring to his second coming. When we're outside of Christ, yes, we should stand in shame when Christ appears. For what life did we live? How did we honor him? How did we glorify him? How did we serve him? How did we love him? I think a lot of us love the Lord as He responds, kind of like to our desires. When He gives breakthrough, yes, I love Jesus. Look at what He's doing for me. When He provides, yes, I love Jesus. Look, look what He does for me. Yet when circumstances change, like a pandem- pandemic, Jesus doesn't love me. Look. Look at the world. Is that what John says? John says, abide in Him. Remain in Him. So that you won't shrink or fall away. That means His coming, this reference to His coming... That's what makes our abiding purposeful. It gives our abiding a time frame. It means in this world, in this life, our abiding becomes different. It changes. No longer are we walking with physical bodies awaiting a Savior to come and rescue and glorify us. But we will stand in His glory, glorified as He is. We'll address that later. Remaining in Him. My dear friends, it's a call to watch for Him. To always be ready so that we won't be ashamed at His coming. On one occasion, Spurgeon challenged his congregation saying, Live from day to day in duty and in devotion that your Lord's coming will be timely go about your business daily and abide in him and then his coming will be a glorious delight to you don't divorce your daily activities from your relationship with Christ in other words don't think that your day should be made up of a a kind of spiritual holy living praying, reading, and then when the rest of the day continues, live however the the flesh aspires to live. And then when you get back in bed before you fall fall asleep, just real quick, Lord, forgive all the sins I've done. Amen. Boom. Is that abiding? To abide means to remain. Remain. John's challenge is this, 
remain in Him. Because what a shock it will be if you go about your business on the day and even the sailors blush at your tongue and Christ appears. Will your response be, Oh yes, the Savior has returned! Or, Oh boy, I wasn't ready for that. John says, abide in Him so that, here's the reason, you will not shrink away. You will be prepared. You will be waiting. You will be hanging on in anticipation at His coming. Now, whatever position you may take, this is the one I hold, that once the, the trumpets sound, we will be made like Him. Let's look at verse 29 once again. He says, If you know that He is righteous, you may be sure that everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. To know means to have assurance, to be sure of and what are we supposed to know? John says that God is righteous. You see, knowing Him in His righteousness means to know by experience. What does Galatians teach us? As believers, as Christians, we are what? Clothed in Christ's righteousness. Amen? So, what that means is when God looks at us, He sees the righteousness of His Son. What that means for us, when John says, Know Him, know Him who is righteous, means we have experienced this righteousness. Listen, a lot of people have argued and says, This does not point to imputed righteousness. Of course it does. Of course it does. Because if Christ had not given me His righteousness, then how do I know the righteousness of the Father? I cannot. The best form of righteousness we can know outside of Christ is but a simple law. Sadly, we know the experience of the law on the wrong end. We know the law because we're lawbreakers. So Paul tells us in Romans, all of us are lost and have gone astray. So what is the moral compass? John says, if you know that he is righteous, then you may be sure of this. Everyone who practices righteousness has been born of Him. That's how you know. It's an evidence. It shows what we have learned, what we have gone through. So in short, what you say you believe about God is most accurately reflected in how you behave. 
I've heard a lot of people tell me, I'm a Christian, I love Jesus. It's great. What's, what's the latest book that you're reading? What's, what, what scripture are you at? Oh, I don't like to read. I don't read the Bible. Hey, hang on. How do you know Jesus? How do you know the Father's heart? How do you know your condition before the Father? What you say you believe about God is most accurately reflected in how you behave. The more you behave like an unbeliever, the more it tells us that you know God less. So if you say you know God, you know that He is righteous, but you live an unrighteous life, it is doubtful, my dear friends, hear these words, it is doubtful whether you are a Christian. Did you get that? You heard it here at CBC Mokopani. God's word says it is highly unlikely that you are born again. But doing righteousness is proof of the new birth. I'm not talking about legalism. Those truly born of God will resemble God in their behavior. Again, it's also not describing perfection, but it does describe the direction of our lives. So if, if, if we are living a life that is Godward, that's focused on pleasing God, glorifying God, honoring God, then it's clear that you are in Christ. But if your life is earthward, if I could use that language, then it's not clear about what your birth status is. However, the suggestion is that you are not born again. If you live like the world, my dear friends, then you belong to the world. And so the person who has been born of God through faith in Christ, John says, knows God. And because he knows Him, he lives a life of obedience. Don't make the mistake of verse 29. It's not saying that righteous behavior is the cause or the condition of the new birth. No, no, no. It's the opposite. It tells us that righteous lives show that God is at work. It's showing us that God is at work. And so the fruit of us abiding is the practice of righteousness. As we abide, as we remain in Him, we live out His righteousness. We practice His righteousness. And that gives the evidence that you are in Christ. That is the comfort of hope. Abide in righteousness. You want to be hopeful about an eternal position? When you read the scriptures and, they, and Jesus says, I go and prepare a place for you. You want that hope? You want that comfort? John says, abide in righteousness. Ultimately, it's the Father who is righteous. Therefore, abide in the Father. Abide in God. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Are you with me? 
That is what points us or comforts us of this true and real hope. There's a second assurance addressed in chapter 3. This assurance is that we are loved as God's children. We are loved as God's children. Verse three, chapter 3 verse 1. See what kind of love the Father has given to us, that we shall be called children of God, and so we are. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. Beloved, we are God's children now, and what we will be has not yet appeared. But we know that when He appears, we shall be like Him, because we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who thus hopes in Him purifies himself as he is pure. See, as we look at our Christian hope, we can understand that we live in, a, in this hope because we are made God's children. It's not a work, it's a gift. We are made God's children because we are born of Him. And being born of Him means that He chose to love us. He called us. He saved us. Again, it's not a work that we did. We did nothing to somehow please God that He would want to save us. A lot of us would argue and say, well, because God knows the beginning from the end, He looked into the future and saw that we would choose Him and so, therefore, He chose us. Really? No, no. Ephesians tells us that He chose us even before. That's the comfort of His love. That's the grace of His love. That's the power of His love. I love that, making a lot of reference to Spurgeon this morning, but I love that Spurgeon put it like this. He said, I'm thankful that God saved me before time. Because if He had to save me now, I doubt that He would have. In reference to His own sinfulness and disobedience, and worthlessness. My dear friends, it's, it's God who first loved. God who draws. He brought us closer. Again, Galatians, Ephesians. Where else would you like us to go? Scripture tells us that He adopted us as His own beloved children. And so, all of this is affected by God's sovereign love. And therefore we can have an eternal hope because He loved us into this hope. Here's how we can look at it. God loved you when? When you were a sinner. When you were undeserving. Romans tells us this. He loved you when you were a stranger. He loved you when you were alienated from Him. He loved you when you were His enemy. And He made you His child. No greater love than this. Amen? 
Friends, and that's the, let me just make this point real quick. That's why you won't choose God. He chooses you. As a stranger, as someone who is alienated, as an enemy, would you run to the Father? Scripture says otherwise. Scripture says that we were hostile toward Him. And so, if He loved you and gave you this marvelous hope and made you His child when you were His enemy, how will He not sustain you as His child? That's the comfort of hope. See that when you stood alienated from Him, He drew you. He loved you. Now that you stand in Him with an inheritance, how will He not sustain you? How will He not care for you? Listen to Romans 8, 38, verse 39. It says, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. My friends, that is your hope. That is your comfort. That is what you get to cling to. You say, but what about my job? What about my livelihood? What about my future? This is your future. Nothing can pull you out of God's sovereign hand. Let me add this. On that note, my dear friends, you cannot even jump out of God's sovereign hand. That's what it means to hold us. We've been loved into being children of God. And the world doesn't share this knowledge. Look at what John says. The reason why the world does not know us is that it did not know Him. That was the world. Slam the door. The world cannot receive the things of God. And therefore, Scripture tells us that God's children must, must do what? Overcome the world. Overcome the world. And one of the ways this can encourage us is that in our pursuit, in our relationship with Him, John says, we will be like Him. We will be glorified just as Christ is fully glorified. And therefore we will know Him and be like Him. And so John says, my dear friends, be encouraged, in other words, as you abide in Him, as you abide in His righteousness, as you take comfort that you are loved in, his, in Him as a child, as His child, this is your hope. You will be like Him. You will be like Him. For now, for now, according to 1 Corinthians 13, 12, it's as if we look into a mirror. You know, when you just get out the shower or you've just 
put warm water in the bathtub with the door closed and all the steam fogs up everything, you try and look in the mirror and what do you see? It's very dim, right? Very dim, as in really dim. Get the point? Scripture says now it's as if we are looking dimly through a mirror. But when He comes and we are made like Him, Paul says, then we will see face to face. Now we know in part, but then we shall fully know. Even, and this is just to make my point stronger, even as we have been fully known. Friends, there's not an aspect of you that God doesn't know. And still He loves you. Still He draws you. What does scripture say about when we are faithless? Paul tells young Timothy, when we are faithless, he remains faithful. Man, what a joy, what a hope that no matter what I'm doing in my vanity, in my pride, in my rebellion, he still loves me. And yes, part of His love for me is that He will correct me. He will discipline me. Which makes His love that much more greater. See, Paul further said in 1 Corinthians 15, from verse 51, He says, Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. There it is. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable and we shall be changed. For the perishable, the perishable body must be put or must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. So when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on the immortal, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. What a hope. Boy, oh boy. Listen, my beloved friends, as your bodies are aching and cracking, and doing things and not doing things that it's supposed to and not supposed to. Our eternal hope is this. It will be made new. It will be made new. Because it will be made as Christ is. Charles Wesley said, Changed from glory into glory till in heaven we take our place till we cast our crowns before Him, lost in wonder, love, and praise. Oh man, I cannot wait. Cannot wait. That's the hope. You see, but we have this hope, and still, what do we do? We look at every single pothole in the road. We complain about a government that doesn't come and fulfill whatever duties it's to fulfill. We complain about our situations in our homes. A 
think some of us even complain with our relationships about God, with God. When our hope is fixed on Christ, that is what purifies. Maybe you've never understood this verse. You've read John 3, 3, and you go, oh, I don't know what that means, but it's cool. That's what this means. Our hope fixed on Christ is what purifies. 1 Timothy 1, verse 1, Jesus is our hope. In connection with hope, Paul says, of waiting with eager expectation of the revelation of the children of God. Waiting for the adoption of sons. He says in Galatians 5.5, 5, Waiting for the righteousness for which we hope. Again, he says to Titus, We wait for the blessed hope which glorifies the appearing of Jesus. So with this hope in mind, John says we purify ourselves. It's not a ritual. It's not a shower. It's not a steaming of our, our physical bodies. It means to pursue a pure life because of the hope we have laid up in heaven. To anticipate being with Jesus. Jesus is pure and we should seek to live like Him in His purity. Philippians 1 verse 10 says, Be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. What day? The day of His appearing. The good news is, in Christ, we already stand in purity and in innocence. So there's no going about a ritual or doing a confession or paying penance. You are washed by the blood. You're not being washed, but are washed. You are made pure. Christ died once. Shed His blood once for all. Can't go back and say, oh, no, Jesus, wash me by your blood. Again, no. Life is in the blood let me just add this, this, this rabbit trail. Life is in the blood. He gave His life. His blood has already paid homage. He's already paid what it needed to pay. Stop saying the blood of Jesus needs to do this or that or that. It's done. He has shed His blood. It's done. He said, it is finished. You can't crucify him again for more blood. It's done. Rather stand and trust in his sovereign hand who says, we who have this hope are being purified. We who have this hope are being purified. Again, Spurgeon said, oh, what blessed hope this is that though we fall asleep we shall surely wake again, and when we awaken, it will be in the likeness of the greatest head of the family, 
and we ourselves shall be heirs of an inheritance in which there will be no more sin and no corruption. That inheritance is kept for us and we are kept for it. So the double keeping makes it doubly sure. Happy are the people to whom these verses apply. My friends, my, the exhortation is this. If you trust that when John writes chapter 2 verse 28 to chapter 3 verse 3 and they apply to you, this is your hope. No one can rob you of this. They can take your earthly possessions. Listen, they can ruin your physical body. But no one can take away the eternal hope that has been laid up for you in heaven. This morning's theme is to address the assurance of hope, not hope itself. Our hope doesn't go anywhere. It's the assurance of our hope that's all over the place. It's like the waves of the ocean, man. Monday morning you wake up full of hope. You go to rest in the evening with no assurance of hope. You say, I'm hopeless. No, no, no. Hope hasn't gone anywhere. We've lost our fixation of His hope. So I say this, my dear friends. Our hope has these blessed features. It is guaranteed by abiding in righteousness and it is established by God's love for us as His children, which assures us of our hope. I'll say it again. That's our conclusion. That's the summary sentence. Every sermon should have that. Just so you know. Our hope has these blessed features. That it is guaranteed by abiding in righteousness and it is established by God's love for us as His children, which is our assurance of hope. If you want hope in earthly materials, in circumstances, it's fleeting. It's fleeting. But you want a hope that's, that stands the test of time. A hope that is realized in eternity then this is it let's pray Lord Jesus we thank you for these words that you spoke to the Apostle John to pen these words for us for your bride for the church so that we would not fall away or stand with doubt be confused or easily tempted instead with this blessed hope this blessed assurance of our hope we can know the work that you are doing for us we can know that our trials and circumstances are also for your glory that they are also for our good I pray that as we wage war against darkness and, and, and the desires of our flesh that you would comfort us once again with the assurance that our battle is not in vain. But our battle 
is already secure because our hope is laid up for us. So Lord, as we long for and as we cling to each promise that you have made us, as we cling to the Holy Spirit working in and through us, comforting us, challenging us, conforming us, let us not grow tired of this race. But as John has said, as we have this hope before us, help us remain purified. Our Lord and our Savior, we pray this in your name. Amen.